Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Hey, look what appeared during my prayer. Um, you know, I think that Christians often find ourselves uh, pulled in two directions. We feel a pull upward, right, toward heaven. And the spiritual realities and the, and the ethics of Jesus. And we, we want to live that out. There's like a draw. The Spirit draws us upward that way. And our affections are set there. But, you know, don't you feel the pull downward too toward the things of the world? And as much as we want to long after these things that are in heaven... We still feel this pressure to conform to a worldly system. We, we feel ourselves being affected by it. And, and sometimes we even notice that we have adopted kind of a cultural commonness that isn't in the Jesus way. And that pull up and down creates a disconnect for us. For one, we feel at times like out of touch with what's happening in the world and remote from it and not understanding it completely. And then on the other hand, we often step back and see that we have kind of developed a false connection culturally with the things that, we're, that we believe or things that have become important to us that have nothing to do with the way of Jesus. And so as Jed uh, did such a great job last week of talking about how our situation that we're looking at in 1 Peter's letter in Asia Minor in the first century. There's a lot of common things. Even though we're, we're like, in my opinion, we're kind of like post-Christian. They were pre-Christian, as Jed talked about. And in the end, all it means is a Christian is trying to live out their faith in a context in which um, you end up just being so different from what is going on in the world. And that's not just like in your your sexual ethic, or like, you know, what you do on Sunday morning. Um, but it's the way you think, the things that are important, the things that we believe will make us happy and bring us joy. You know, almost all New Testament letters, you know, in your New Testament, you have like the Gospels and then Acts, and there's these letters. Almost all of those letters have a juncture in them. They have like a like an intersection. The first part of the letter is usually doctrinal, and then there's a switch, and it becomes about doing. Or you could look at it this way. The first part of the letter is usually about the logic of Christianity, and then the second half or second part is about living, living it out. And that's where we're at in Peter's letter. This is a juncture where Peter is going to reduce everything that he has to say into two verses. So, every, you know, like if, if the only message you ever listen to from this letter is this one, 
uh, because you're passing through or whatever. This is the essence of the entire letter, and he does it in two verses. In, number, in verse 11, he acknowledges these tensions that we feel, the pull above and the pull downward. And in verse 12, he practically starts to unpack what we're supposed to do about that. And as Peter leans into this, the first thing he does, just like he did when he started the letter, is he identifies with the people that he's writing to. And in verse 11 of chapter 2, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. That's how it starts. Like, come, do you remember, like, the first, the opening part of the letter kind of begins in the same way. So, like, he just is kind of recapping. And you can see his shepherd's heart here. Because what he's about to say is super radical. It's hard what he's going to tell us to do, what he told them to do. But he's not remote from it. He's not shouting from a fortress or like yelling with a megaphone. He's not preaching at them. He's among them. And I love this idea that Soren Kierkegaard once wrote. I'm going to put it up on the screen. He said that people have an idea that the preacher is an actor on a stage and they are the critics, blaming or praising him. What they don't know is that they are the actors on the stage. And he, the preacher, is merely the prompter standing in the wings, reminding them of their lost lines. I love that. Peter says, from the wings, I'm with you. He's urging them on. He's standing with them. And he, there's a few reminders in this. Number one, he says, we're all in this together. He says, dear friends. That's how he starts. That, another word for that is companion. He's showing his affection for the people that he's writing to. And you know, we all need companions, right? We all need to know that there are people that we're connected to and they stand with us. Take a second, as we've been doing in our services, and turn to somebody that you don't know right now. Do you guys not know me? You're all still looking at me. So like, I'm Brit. I'm one of the pastors here. Look at someone you don't know, and I want you to say this, okay? We need each other. All right. So that is an unabashed advertisement for life groups, by the way. We need each other. And we, we need, we, you know, like you can't share your deepest, darkest secrets with that person that you just looked at. But you need people around you that you learn to trust. People that you can call your dear friends. Even though I love what Heather said, her spiritual gift is not friend finder, right? That's true. But we need people that we can link arms with and grow together with. Secondly, Peter says, I know how you feel right now. Because remember, we've talked about these terms before. Ex, uh, you are exiles and foreigners, and he's used them separately before, but like he mashes them together here. And a foreigner is someone who's without a home. That is um, the literal translation of that. 
and an exile is someone who's a temporary resident. And what's super interesting here is, and Jed, Jed noted this last week, how Peter is recalling some of his Jewish ancestry, like parts of his history as a, as a, as a Jew. And he's, he, the picture there is when Israel was taken into captivity by Babylon. First the northern kingdom, then the southern kingdom. And some of them were taken in slavery to be indentured in, in Babylon and eventually Persia. And then some of, them, some of them were just left behind without any power or anything. So no matter if you, went, if you were pulled out of your home or you were left in your home, you felt like you didn't belong because everything had changed. And what's interesting about that this is what I loved about what Jed brought out last week, is that he's including everybody in that. And you know, Peter was not an includer at first. If you know about Simon Peter, you know, God had to convince him that people that weren't Jewish were going to actually be able to follow Jesus. But eventually he got the point. And here he is talking to a community of people that largely were Gentile and saying, we have a common story. We are left out. We are literally and spiritually outsiders. Have you been feeling that? The pull of heaven and earth on you, and at times you feel like, what? Like, has the world gone crazy? And where, where do I fit in here? Well, I think most of us have. But yet, social scientists in history, and I would say even observation today, shows us that we all react differently to that feeling of kind of being left out and feeling like we're a, we're a culture within a culture, or as we titled our study of First Peter, we are a countercultural, a counterculture. And we have some options of how we approach that, our orientation and our view of what it means to be countercultural. And th these are in your notes. First of all, we could wage a culture war, right? Do you know that in the first century, there were four, at least four, Jewish sects, differences? Uh, there were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You've probably heard of them before. There were the Essenes, a little less known. And then there was a group called the Zealots, and the zealots, their, their whole goal, even though they shared Judaism, their goal was to overthrow the Roman rule. And according to a historian at the time, not a Christian historian, uh, Josephus, they, the zealots, agree in all, thing, all other things with the Pharisaic notions, but they have an invaluable attachment to liberty. And they say that God is to be their only ruler and Lord. So for the zealots, their main issue was the rule of Rome. And among them are these even further radicals that are called the Sakari. They are the daggermen. They are violent people. They are the terrorists of their day. And they seek opportunities to assassinate those that, do, that hold the rule over them or do not hold a Judaistic view 
of the nation of Israel. Now, we may not see daggermen today, but this is one way that we can respond to wage a war. And it's, we even use the language. We hear Christians using this language. It's fighting a culture war. or We've got to win the war. And like the zealots, the foremost issue for us is our rights. You guys still with me? And we, so we have to fight, right, for our rights. And that usually means emphasizing or leveraging our power in any way that we can. And often we even use warlike phrases and strategies. And it often looks like war, a war of words. It can be ugly. It can be ugly. It can be disrespectful. And sometimes it's plain old unchristian. See, the strategy of war is force and confrontation. And winning the war becomes more important at times for the Christian, this is all of us, than the reason we're fighting, which is to be a Jesus follower. Remember, Jesus told Peter to put down his sword. And Jesus also said, I am gentle and humble in heart. So it doesn't sound like Fighting a cultural war is the answer. We have another option. Number two, we can retreat into the Christian bubble. That's a strategy of avoidance, right? Do you guys remember in the, what is it, junior high or high school, you study colonial, American colonial history. Do you remember the separatists? Separatists were separate. I mean, it's like this is our pilgrim, the pilgrim heritage that we've been given. They wanted to be separate from um, the religious community in England, from the government. And, they, and so like this morphs over and over again. Um, in the most extreme wing of the Puritans, uh, we, we still have a remnant of them today, the Amish, right? And they, they live like totally separate from the world We have less extreme but modern versions of this. We, we won't fight, but we'll build a fortress for isolation and protection. And the modern separatist um, has only Christians in their life. And in fact, you know, only a certain kind of Christians. And, and we become kind of like an echo chamber to one another. And evidently, this is a problem right away in the first century. Remember, Jesus had to clarify this even with his disciples. He said, you're to be in the world, in the world, but not of the world. And then Paul writes to first century Christians in Corinth in his first letter, chapter 5, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world, right? Paul says, like, you can't avoid, you can't, like, so isolate yourself that you never come in contact with a person who doesn't share your same belief. That's impossible to do. And yet somehow... Some of us in the Christian community take Paul's writings 
to somehow advocate this kind of isolationist Christian faith. In spite of the fact that he went all around the world preaching the gospel, entering into dialogues and debates with people that were completely unreligious and had and, or other religions, so retreating into a bubble can't be the answer either. Our third option that we have available to us is to assimilate to the culture. This is kind of like if you can't beat them, join them, right? And we do it through either adoption or absorption. By that I mean we make edits to Christian faith. We have like the Orthodox Christian faith, and then we edit it by either removing the parts that we don't prefer or adding something into it and then just kind of putting a little shiny Christian title on it. In Peter's letter here in verses 11 and 12, he addresses all of these false responses and he offers another way for us to live counterculturally. And it is the essence of his letter of what he's writing to these believers who, who are living in a culture that is hostile to them. And in, in the end, what Peter says is we must deny ourselves take up our cross and deny ourselves these lesser responses and choose another way. It is the Jesus way. Are you ready for it? No? Okay. Just checking to see if you're still with me. So number one, this is verse 11. Reaching people in a post-Christian culture does not require imitating the culture. We're going to start there because that's where Peter starts. We don't assimilate the culture. It's quite the opposite. If we assimilate the culture, then how can we reach people in the culture? What do we have to reach them with? Because once the church is co-opted by the culture, it can no longer speak to the culture. Nor do we necessarily just reject everything about culture. It's like, that isn't it. It's like, we don't just... Say, whatever culture says back, because sometimes culture gets it right. But that is not our, our compass. It's the way of Jesus. What then? In verse 11, again, Peter starts by saying, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So what he's saying here is that as a believer, it must, we have to be intentional about not adopting the culture when it conflicts with the way of Jesus and not, and not absorbing this culture either. I urge you, this is like I'm putting this on your radar. This is super important for you to be alert, to abstain, that is to remain distance from these things. What are these sinful desires that Peter is warning us to keep our distance from? Well, specifically later in his letter, and we'll look at this, in more detail, but in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And this is kind of like a sin sampler of the day in that region, right? There's more to the list, people. We could add to this list. But obviously... 
This is a society that is very sex-driven and often intoxicated. Hmm. And you know, the Christian ethic on these matters is not very popular in the culture. Nor is it understood. Oftentimes, what we're passing on to our culture and to our kids, parents, I would say, is we're passing on to them rules. The Bible says this, don't do that. So that's one level. But that doesn't help people understand the theology behind these things. And the church has done not so great a job on the theology behind our ethics. We have good rules, but are we capable of explaining why God's way is better? Because with just rules, we have just a legalism. We, have, we just have another set of rules that's different from the world, and often those rules don't translate, not to the world, and to those of you parents who have adolescents, you're, you're, you're in conflict with your kids sometimes because that they don't understand why that is a Christian ethic. And we need a stronger theology about sex, about money, about marriage, about gender, abortion, race, liberty, politics, patriotism. We need a theology about these things. So look for a series about that in the future. But we should also take note of the last thing that Peter mentions here, the last sinful desire, which is idolatry. Which, let's just admit, is more of an acceptable sin among Christians. But here, Peter, it's the only one in the list that he gives an extra adjective to. Did you notice that? Detestable idolatry. And if you're sitting there right now and you're saying, well, I don't bow down to any wooden image, so I'm good here, so you can move on, Brit. Well, let's think about it. What is idolatry? And so, like, when you have a big concept that no one else can explain, who do you go to? Tim Keller. So I have a quote by Tim Keller from his book called Counterfeit Gods. He says, what is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart, imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Now look at that person you looked at earlier. And say, ouch. Yeah. Now turn back to them and share some of your idols. No, I'm just kidding. That would be pushing it too far, right? But maybe you could talk to somebody about that this week. See, the thing is, our propensity to idol worship is uh, limitless. If it's anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give, then that's pretty wide open 
topic. It may be what makes it so detestable, so easy, so convenient to fall into it. John Calvin, a French reformer, said this, the human heart is a factory of idols. Someone else likes that statement too. Like, isn't that true? I mean, are Christians at any time, in any place, are they ever susceptible to idols? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. Why are we so inclined to idolatry? Because idolatry is not the making of other gods so much as it is making ourselves God. I mean, who makes the idol after all? We're shaping the idol to be what we want it to be. And now we've just made our own God. See, we worry about being slave, enslaved to all kinds of things. But the greatest risk we have is to be, in, to be slaves to our own sinfulness and our own propensity to make ourselves God. Whether that's my lifestyle or my behaviors or the way I think or what I what I choose to make the most important part of my day, we're all so easily just drawn into making ourselves God. Often we're confronted with this point where we lay down the things that we think, our positions, our issues, the, the preferred lifestyle that we want or the choices we want to make. And we lay that down next to what Jesus said or did And how often does the idol win? Peter says these desires, including idolatry, wage war against our souls. We picture ourselves like we're battling sin in the world and bringing the gospel to the world. Hopefully we're doing those things, but do you see that sin is waging war against us? And these things don't just impede our progress as a Christian. They don't just kind of water down our faith. They war against our souls. They undermine, they fight in the other direction, and they end up making us a POW to the enemy of Jesus. And that's why it's so important that if you name the name of Jesus today, You have to be clear-minded, as Peter said earlier, in seeing the destructive behaviors in our culture and the destructive ways of thinking and the undermining of how our faith becomes eroded to where we set ourselves up as God instead of just being a simple follower of Jesus. So yeah, we're in a war, but it's not with the culture. It's more in our hearts, isn't it? That's where the real war is. I've left a little spot in your notes where it just says, the war I'm in. And I want to encourage you to think about that this week. And maybe get together with somebody. Some, some groups, some of our life groups, or even they'll, they'll meet early. You know, They'll start meeting. And, but even if you're not in a group yet, Look for an opportunity to sit with another Christian, your husband or your wife or your family or 
your buddies, you know, or your girlfriends or whatever. Just like and ask, talk to each other about the war that you're fighting. Because it's becoming increasingly more difficult to tell the difference between a Christian and someone who isn't. Often our differences even look worldly. So what then is the difference? What is supposed to come to the surface in a Jesus follower? What does it mean to be different or countercultural? And here it is in verse 12. To live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now there's so much compressed into that verse. Uh, I'm going to summarize it with a note sheet point and then I'm going to break it down. But here is the note sheet point. Reaching people in a post-Christian culture requires us to live beautiful and virtuous lives among our neighbors and friends. Peter says to live such good lives. That word good means beautiful in appearance. It can be translated virtuous or attractive. So to live counterculturally is not to wage a culture war. Peter also says that as we do this, we do it among the pagans. So we're not isolated or separate. So retreat cannot be a strategy either. Pagans, by the way, is not a pejorative term here. This is just a way of speaking about other nations and other religious beliefs. Literally, it means nations. So what Peter is saying is live this life among all kinds of people. Hence, the intended meeting here is clearly to live among those of different or no faith. So no Christian bubble. In other words, allow people to be eyewitnesses to the true nature of the creator of the universe. That means we live this good life in interaction with people who are far from faith, who have a different faith in our neighborhood, at Little League, at soccer, at work. Wherever there are people, we are living this good life and inviting them in to the life that Jesus said is a life full. Remember that? John 10, 10. Remember Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Isn't that something that should be said of those of us who name the name of Christ, that God has called us to live out his image? We are made in his image. Is that what we're doing? Or am I being absorbed by the culture? Or am I living separate? from the culture with a beautifully attractive life that reflects who Jesus was. If we want to reach people in a post-Christian culture, 
That's the strategy. Look at what Peter says will happen if Christians do this. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Does that sound familiar to any of you? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Doesn't that sound very familiar? And we have said in the past that the, that the New Testament church, the, the first century church, is trying to live out the teachings of Jesus that came from the Sermon on the Mount, which is why we spent so much time on it at the beginning of this year. If you haven't listened to that series, I encourage you to go back because these are the core teachings of Jesus. And it's important for us when we read these New Testament letters to read them through that lens because that's what they're telling people. They're telling the first century Christians in different regions how to live out the Jesus ethic in their context and time. And notice the transformation that happens in a community of people when people live this way. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Which the, the, the implication here is that they were being accused of things. In fact, Peter goes on in this letter and the other to talk about suffering for living a certain way. And, and he says, if you suffer for doing wrong, what good is it? So Christians are being slandered sometimes with good reason in the first century. And yet Peter is saying, if, if you live this way, it makes it so they can't even say it, not truthfully. And so he says, live in such a way that when slander is spoken, make it not true. And here, in that context, slander turns to wonder. That's what Peter is saying, do you see the change? They go from accusing Christians to glorifying God. They go from having a bias against God in his ways that turns to seeing his glory. Wonder moves people toward God. A couple of weeks ago, I showed a video at the end of my sermon. I don't know if you caught, there was one line in it just really stood out to me. It was a quote by Charles Taylor, and I'm going to put it up on the screen. In the 1950s, people believed and were tempted to doubt. Today, people doubt and are tempted to believe. Does that make sense? Show them the real God. Let them see both your distinct ethic and your good deeds. In other words, Peter is saying, use your life to change people's minds about God. So that those that were like anti-Christian, anti-God, they step back at a certain point. And only the Holy Spirit can do this in conjunction with what they see lived out in genuine Christian faith. And they step back and they go, they were right. That, that makes sense to me now. 
not by being just like them, not by warring against and not by running away, Peter says, but by our good life. Do you guys remember when schools were shut down at the beginning of the pandemic? Anybody remember that? <laughs> okay, that hasn't faded from our memory yet, right? Everyone suffered. Everyone was frustrated. Every, you know, people were scared. And Sunridge, we, we asked ourselves on our staff, on our board, we're like, what, what do we do? We chose to help. We chose to help those that we felt would, were suffering most in that situation. We couldn't do everything for everybody, but we could do something. And we said, we're going to help teachers and parents and the students. And so we asked you to give, and we gave teachers gift cards for dinner. Because, remember, they were like doing it all day online. Some of you are teachers. And, uh, and then you had to feed your kids, too. We're like, okay, we can do that. And we, we did a thing here on campus for kids. Parents could bring their kids, and we would help them with the things that they struggled most with, which was like connection, having a little fun, and reading. Because we knew that kids were falling behind about that. And then every parent that dropped them off was like so relieved. Many of you were going, that was your date night. It turned into date night. Like, here's my kids. So we chose in that moment as a church, and many of you joined us in this, to live the good life. To show the light of Christ in this community. When we moved back into this building after meeting outside, you know, we, you know, if you're new at Sunridge, we went through every iteration of how you could do church in a year and a half. It was crazy around here. You couldn't get your, couldn't get your, um, you know, your feet. You couldn't get, you know, your balance at all. And we went through all that. And then when we decided to move back into church, which was what we used to do every Sunday, do you know how hard that was for us to do it to like restaff children's ministry? But we said. This is the next step for us. And I, it's like, there's a bunch of you. I won't even ask you to raise your hands. You said, I've never worked in children's ministry. I want to show the good life. And you signed up to help with kids. And I won't ask how many of you are regretting that in this moment. But God bless you because you stepped up into an uncomfortable place because you were living the good life. You were shining the light of Christ in this community. Peter says to Christians in a culture that for the most part is rejecting Christianity, he says, don't assimilate into the culture. Don't battle it and don't run away from it. Instead, live according to a different ethic. Live an unassailable goodness. And when you do that, people see the glory of God. Do I have that right? Is that what, the, is that what we just read in the scripture? If you believe that, say amen. If you don't, come talk to me afterwards. I think I can convince you. 
Let me ask you something. How radical does that sound to you right now? The others are easier. How scary is it to you to live that way? How uncomfortable will it make you at times? But how much does it make sense? You know, if you're not a Christian um, and you're here today and you're exploring faith, I want to say to you, you know, the church in general and us included, we're not always stellar in these moments. And for that, we all apologize. We're human beings and we lose our way. And we get on things that are less important. But Jesus invites us into a way of life that shines the light of our Creator to the people that are around us. That's Christian faith. And I hope that you have a Christian in your life that is doing that right now. I'm going to ask the band to come up as I close. And I just as, as they come up, I want to talk to those of you who are Christians. In your notes... Um, there's a section that says, my good life, dot, dot, dot. And once again, this week, I would love for you to just spend some time thinking about that and talking to somebody about what we've talked about today. And like, as you see the world today, what is, what is going to be your good life? What is the goodness that you're going to find? Because we're all in different places. We all have different seasons of life, and we're in different contexts. But the way the world is, how will you live the good life so that people around you who might be against what you believe, who might be indifferent to what you believe, but by your life, by something that you do or say or the way you say or do it, will bring them to a point where they wonder about God and they, they say, I get it. I see the difference. Did you notice in your note sheet, if you have the actual paper note sheet, that the two main sentences begin with bolded words, reaching people. That wasn't just a way to delineate two points. It's also the point. See, that's why we are here, to reach people. That's our calling to reach people with the good news. If you choose to fight the culture war, you will never reach people. And by the way, you won't win the culture war. If you hide out in a bubble, you won't reach people either because there's no impact without contact. And if you just assimilate the culture, then what are you reaching people with? in the end. You know, living in this day and time, it is really important that the church gets this. This is our moment. I believe that this is our moment to make a difference or to utterly blow it. You know, every once in a while, somebody will... Uh, graciously come up to me and critique my sermon or how I preach. 
And uh, thank you for all the input. I could use it. But, you know, one of the common ones, can I just shoot straight with you, is like, you don't preach hard enough. You don't preach on sin enough, which being interpreted is, you're not telling those other people what I want you to tell them. In case you're missing it right now, every Christian sitting here, I'm preaching as hard as you could preach. Because I'm talking right to you, and I'm saying, this is your moment. Look, what Peter said is not disputable. We're not, we're, we don't have to argue about what he just said, right? So this isn't about whether you believe it or not. This is about whether you want to do it or not. So if you're a Christian, ask yourself this question. Do I want to have a gospel impact in the world today? That's the question you have to ask. Because if you don't, all this hard preaching isn't going to help you. And I'm talking to you whether you're a conservative or a liberal, whether you're for this or against that, whatever your issue is, you can grind on it all you want, okay. But do you wake up in the morning and say, how can I be a witness to the good life, to who God is in my community? If you're not doing that, you're not following Jesus. How's that for hard preaching? Okay, you're clapping now. I ain't done. Are you on mission? Okay, Lisa is. Thank you. I know, and I know you are. I'm trying to catch up. Are you on mission? Let's go, because the mission is to help people find and follow Jesus. That's why we're here. And if you don't get that, if, that's not, if you don't have a good answer to why you wake up in the morning, um, you're not going to make a difference in the world. And you're not going to understand anything that Peter says after this. So you're wasting your time. But if you're interested and you're open to learning and saying, okay, I want to learn from a guy who, talked, who didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk, and he lived in a culture that was much more disruptive and much more challenging. He was crucified upside down for crying out loud for his faith. Like what he has to say makes a difference. And he's going to challenge you in places you've never thought about before. But you got to get that, you got to get that answer first. Do I want to be a gospel witness in the world today? Because he's going to get so practical about what the good life means. He's going to talk about our relationship to governmental leaders. He's going to talk about how we do our vocation. He's going to talk about our marriage. He's going to talk about our relationship to our church and what, it, what we do when we suffer for simply being a Christian. I'm promising you we're going to grab a whole other gear in practical living out this gospel influence in the world. So... That starts next week. In the meantime, let's stand and respond in worship to this band that's been standing up here letting me prattle on. Let's, let's respond in worship to the idea that God has called us to live this way in the world so that people around us who are anti-God step back and go, he's wondrous. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. 
If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.